the old man was tired. A longtime resident of Jerusalem, he had seen so much change, so much turmoil. The Roman government was ever-changing, constantly restructuring, rulers rose and fell, and now the ruthless and murderous Herod the Great ruled Israel under the oppressive authority of Rome. The culture in Israel was simultaneously Hellenistic and Roman, a far cry from the Jewish culture he grew up reading about in the Old Testament. He felt like a stranger in his own city, a foreigner in his own country. One would hardly blame Simeon if he had a pessimistic worldview. From the standpoint of many of his Jewish peers, all seemed lost. The Roman Empire held ultimate power over Israel, and even the Jewish priesthood was corrupt. Evil seemed unstoppable. And to make matters worse, the prophets had long since stopped delivering messages from Yahweh. God had gone silent. For many pious Jews, it seemed that God had hidden His face from Israel. God seemed invisible. But not for Simeon. He lived with a joyful hope, and for good reason. The Holy Spirit had assured him that the consolation of Israel for which he had been waiting for decades was on its way. And in Luke chapter 2, we'll pick up a piece of Simeon's story. Don't worry, I'll read it to you. You stay in Psalms. I'll pick you up in a minute. Luke chapter 2, verse 25 begins this way. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents had brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In the middle of a dark period in Israel's history, when all seemed lost, when evil seemed unstoppable, and when God seemed invisible, the light of the world made His entrance. God delivered on His promises and sent the Savior. Now I know in a room this size filled with so many people, some of you are hurting. Some of you are walking through a dark season. It may seem to you that all is lost. That evil is unstoppable. And maybe God has even seemed to have gone silent for you. I'm here to encourage you from God's Word this morning. You can trust Him. If you're not walking through a season like that, I would venture a guess that you have, and I would venture a bold assertion that you will. So we need to learn together as a church to trust God, even in the darkest moments. I have good news for you. The Lord is still on His throne. You can find encouragement in God's Word today. I'm here to remind you this morning that even in our darkest moments, there's still hope. God is faithful, and you can trust Him on the basis of His character, His Word, 
and his works. So go with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 11. Here we will see, as we read, that God is faithful even when all seems lost. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. God is faithful even when all seems lost. In each section today, we'll do three of them. One from Psalm 11, one from Psalm 12, one from Psalm 13. We're going to see three Ps. And I'm sorry, I'm just Baptist. What can I do about it? <laughs> we're we're going to nearly overdose on alliteration this morning. Uh, I said three, it's actually going to be four. Uh, in your notes, in your bulletin or worship guide, you'll see three, and I've buried the lead on the fourth each time. So in, this, in each section, we'll see a problem, a promise, and a proof, and then I will urge you to a practice in each one. So in this Psalm, Psalm 11, the problem is that the wicked attack the righteous and it seems like they will prevail. The wicked attack the righteous and it seems like they'll prevail. You see this in the first three verses pretty clearly. The wicked threaten David's life. The wicked even threaten the very foundations of Israel in verse 3. And the, the wicked threaten to ruin the hope of the righteous. What? Can the righteous do? I, I think you'll notice there are two voices going on in the verse three, first three verses here. There is one who is encouraging David to flee to the mountains. Get out of harm's way, David. It's all going bad. Your enemy seems unstoppable. You need to run. And then you'll see David's voice in verse 4 saying, Why should I run? The Lord is on His throne. I mean, I think you could take courage with that. We could probably stop the sermon and say, Amen, why should you worry? The Lord is on His throne. But I'll keep going because this sermon's supposed to be a little bit longer. <laughs> the wicked threaten to ruin the hope of the righteous, but here's your promise. God will avenge the righteous and He will judge the wicked. God is still on His throne, ruling and reigning over His people and indeed all people. See it in verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Contrary to the shaky foundations in verse 3, God's throne never shakes. I hope that that hits you as good news. God's throne never shakes. It's never uncertain in heaven. We just studied the book of Revelation in our workshop this week. And I'll tell you, the book of Revelation, the Bible ends with a resounding note that Jesus has conquered 
his enemies and he will bring his people home. Isn't that such good news? My goal is to encourage you this morning. God's throne here in verse 4 is the supreme image of stability and order. God will be the refuge of the righteous. That's the refuge they're looking for in verse 1, where the tempter, or maybe it's an advisor, we're not sure, says, go ahead and run to the mountains. Flee like a bird to your mountain. But David says, why flee to the mountains? Why flee like hunted prey? The psalmist knows he is safe in the presence of God and under his watch care. Why? Why is he safe? Because God is in the heavens and God sees everything in verse 4. He sees everything. He tests all men and God upholds justice in verses 5 through 7. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now, I know that to our modern American ears and sensibilities, this text presents some serious issues. And I'm going to let Abe untangle those for you. (laughs) I'm going to do nothing to settle your conscience about these things. What I want you to see is that God is in charge. God is in control. And He will avenge His people. He will pour out justice on the wicked. It's coming. It's coming. You can trust Him. Even when all seems lost. Now in verse 6, we see some imagery that should remind us as good Old Testament scholars of the issue in Sodom and Gomorrah where the fire and sulfur comes down from heaven, swallows it up, and and still the smoke kept on burning for a really long time. And Peter uses that same imagery in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6-10 through to show us this, that God rescues the godly from trials, but He punishes the righteous. The problem is, The wicked attack the righteous, and it seems like they'll prevail, but the promise is that God will avenge the righteous and judge the wicked. So how do we know that God's promise will come to pass? Why can we trust Him? Well, there's a proof here in this text. There's actually three. The proof is His character. Why can we believe what God says? Because of who God is. Look at verse 4. He is... Sovereign. His eyes see. Nothing catches God by surprise. You need to know this because there are circumstances in your life that catch you by surprise, that hit you like a ton of bricks, that knock the wind out of you. Maybe that diagnosis did that for you. Maybe you're still reeling from the bad news about your child. I I don't know what you're walking through, but I do know we're not always equipped for it. And sometimes life knocks the wind out of you. But hear me clearly, God is never taken by surprise. He knows. He sees. And He will act. He is sovereign. Nothing renders God helpless. So He is sovereign. He's also just We see that in verses 5 and 6. He tests the righteous. He hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. We know that the wicked may be winning now, but righteousness will prevail. In Exodus chapter 34, there's this wonderful description that God gives of His own self. Now, in the context, 
Uh, Moses wants to see God's face, and God says, uh, you, you can't do that. You'll die. I can't show you my face, but I will tell you my name. And in Exodus 34, the Lord tells him his name. He says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And I'm going to pause for just a moment. That tells us that God is by his nature, merciful. There's this popular narrative that the God of the Old Testament was harsh and stern and austere, but the God of the New Testament, he's all love. And I'm here to tell you, he's both. He's both merciful, that's who he is, and he's also just, if you'll finish that section, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity on the fathers, on the children, and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God tells us in His Word what He's like. He is simultaneously merciful and just. God loves, He delights to show mercy, but He will not let sin go unpunished. This is who He is. God holds mercy and justice in perfect tension and here's the good news for you. God has shown you mercy through His justice. How do you, how, why do you say that, Andrew? Because God punished His sinless Son so that you could stand righteous before a thrice holy God. God poured out on Jesus the sins of us all. God poured out on Jesus what you deserve and what I deserve. And instead, He gives us, should we repent and turn to Him in faith, He gives us mercy and forgiveness of sin, hope and a future and eternity in His presence. One day we will be able to see His face. And it's because He poured out His wrath on His Son and His mercy on you. He punished his perfect son instead of his sinful people. I, I, I planned to read Isaiah 53 to you, but I, I just want to give you that as homework this week. Read Isaiah 53 and see how the suffering servant was punished in our place. God is sovereign. He is just and merciful. And he loves and rewards righteousness. Let's end this psalm together. Verse 7. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So God is righteous. He loves righteousness and he rewards the righteous. So I think the obvious question is, okay, well, how can I be righteous? And on your own, you can't. But when you put your trust in the suffering servant who bore the wrath that you deserve in your place and offers you mercy instead, that's how you become righteous. Then when God looks on you, he sees his son. So how can we be righteous? By trusting Jesus and obeying his words. That leads me to the practice. I know it's not in your notes. You can scribble it somewhere. The practice is put your confident trust in him. 
Brothers and sisters, when you face trials of every kind, when you walk through dark and difficult seasons, when it seems like all is lost, don't cower or collapse or flee in fear like David is urged to do in verse 1. No, say with David, the Lord is in his holy temple. Or say with David in Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When it seems like all is lost, put your confident trust in Him. I saw this happen in Smithville, Mississippi. My dad used to pastor there for 13 years, I think. And in 2011, there was this crazy... You may remember the news from that day. There was this insane weather event. Hundreds of tornadoes ripped through the southeast. Do you remember this? April 2011. And the biggest one, the F5 tornado, demolished my parents' town. It demolished the building my dad was in, the church building. Only one room remained, and it was the room that my dad, the youth pastor, and some neighborhood kids from the trailer park nearby were in. Amazing stuff. The next day, well, actually, I'll tell you, uh, that evening, it was a Wednesday. I'll never forget. I was getting ready to preach for my students in my student ministry, and I get a phone call from my dad, and I can recite it to you because the cell service dropped out right after he said these words. The church is gone. I don't know where your mom is. I didn't even know weather was in the area. So I frantically look up weather.com. And I mean, this is right before I go to preach, and I'm just a mess, as you can imagine. Finally, I do get a. I told this story once before, and someone said, Did your mom survive? Because I forgot to finish the story. (laughs) Uh, Yes, she's doing great. Uh, She did. She was at work 30 miles away. Um, But we went down the next day and I just saw sheer carnage. I mean, absolute destruction. A church like this, um, it had a balcony. And if you walked up the three steps at the front of the building or the entrance of the building, you would walk straight onto the balcony, which was just flattened. I remember being in a meeting with the leaders at the church where they asked the question, what should we do about Sunday? It was Wednesday. What should we do about Sunday? We should cancel church, right? This was the week after Easter. And they decided, oh, we're not going to cancel church. We're going to worship. And my dad, in a huge party tent, event tent that they set up in the parking lot, preached, I am the resurrection and the life. And dozens of people came to faith in Jesus that day. Don't cower in fear. Boldly proclaim, the Lord is on my side. We can take refuge in our sovereign, just, and merciful God. Believe the psalmist's promise. The righteous can take refuge in our God. God is faithful even when all seems lost. Look with me at Psalm 12. This psalm is going to teach us that God is faithful even when evil seems unstoppable. To the choir master, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? 
Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. Look with me at the top and the tail of this passage. The godly one is gone, the faithful have vanished, and on every side vileness is exalted among the children of men. Can I just ask you this question? Does that not sound like 2024 America to you? It does to me. Here's the problem in our text. The godly one is gone, and the faithful have vanished. This seems true today. I think we can identify pretty easily with Psalm chapter 12. The godly are now the minority. Used to be the majority, at least we thought. Now we're the minority. Christians are constantly being opposed and attacked. We see obvious evil and just irrationality being promoted as righteousness. We are seen as evil for upholding God's Word, are we not? The state of affairs where we live now pretty bad. I mean, you can tell the truth from God's Word and get rung up on charges of hate speech. Men set themselves up as judges over God and His Word. Look at verses 3 and 4. Who is master over us? You've heard this, haven't you? You've heard people ask questions about God's Word. Well, that's just your interpretation. Or how can a good God do blank? Or worse yet, I just can't believe what I read on the page. You've heard this, haven't you? Some of you. Hear the arrogance of the speaker in verses 3 and 4 in this text, or in verse 4. With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Men set themselves up as judges over God and His Word. Worse yet, in verse 5, the poor and the needy are plundered, and vileness is exalted in verse 8. I hope that Pastor Abe brings me back after I start talking about the exaltation of vileness, but you can see it everywhere, can't you? I mean, our government funds abortion. They facilitate the oppression of the poor. Sexual perversion and gender dysphoria are normalized and celebrated by our media. Greed is celebrated in politics, in sports, in media, and in business. I remember those old commercials from like four or five years ago. Remember those E-Trade commercials? Don't get mad. Get E-Trade. You remember those? There's one that I, honestly, I kind of like it. I'll be honest. It's this dude who's obviously a fool and he's partying on a yacht. And the commercial says, the dumbest guy in your high school just bought a boat. And I'm thinking to myself, what a shock. Good for him. He really turned the tables. I can't believe this. Go for it, dude. But the message of the commercial is, don't get mad. Get even. Get E-Trade. Get rich yourself. That'll show him. I mean, greed is exalted everywhere you look. 
Sin is celebrated everywhere we look. The problem, I think we can resonate with it. The godly one is gone and the faithful have vanished. But here's the promise. God will guard the righteous from uprising wickedness. God sees the injustice of the world and he will arise to action. Look at verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. God will place the oppressed in safety. I love this passage in Psalm 68. You don't have to turn there. This talks about the character and works of our God. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the desert. His name is the Lord, exalts before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. God will, according to verse 7, guard the godly forever. You can take it to the bank, brother and sister. You don't have to fear because God will guard the righteous. What's the proof? How do we know? The proof is His Word. Look at verse 6. Well, He made a promise in verse 5. And then look at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. God made a promise to deliver the oppressed. He has done it, and He will do it again. The Scripture is filled with examples of God delivering the oppressed. God delivered Hagar from the hatred of her master, Sarah. God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. God delivered Ruth from destitution. He gave her fields to glean in and a redeemer to take care of her. God redeemed David from all those people who hunted him, most notably the most powerful man in the world at the time. God delivered the early church from persecution. God delivered the slaves in North America. God delivered people from unjust Jim Crow laws. And hear me, God will do it again. God delivers the oppressed. God always fulfills His Word. I'm going to hit you with a rapid-fire succession of verses here that prove the point. Numbers 23, 19. Has He said it and will He not do it? Or has He not spoken and will He not fulfill it? In other words, God doesn't lie or change His mind. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For the, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jeremiah 1.12, I am watching over my word to perform it. Ezekiel 12.25, it will no longer be delayed, but in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. And we probably all know Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What's the proof of God's promise here? His word. So here's your practice. Get your pens ready. Trust the Lord's sure word over the world's false word. Brother and sister, don't you worry about uprising wickedness. God will guard the righteous. 
Don't you give in to worldly pressure to discard this book. God will uphold His Word and He will take care of His people. One of my favorite characters in church history is Martin Luther. I just can't get enough reading about that guy. Such an interesting dude. And he's brought up on charges before a council. He's, he's risking his life. He seems like he's about to be martyred. And here was his defense. <clears throat> Unless I am convinced by sacred Scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant, for my conscience is held captive by the Word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. The world makes it seem like listening to their word is right and safe, but hear me clearly. Only God's word is what keeps you right and safe. Resist the false word of the world and trust the Lord's sure word. You can believe his word. He will be faithful to deliver on his promises. God is faithful even when evil seems unstoppable because his word is true. And lastly, go with me to Psalm 13. This psalm is going to teach us that God is faithful even when he seems invisible. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider, answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Here's the problem, and I bet you can commiserate. It seems like God has hidden his face from his servant. Oh, have you ever prayed prayers that you feel like you're just throwing prayers up against the ceiling? Like you're, you're praying and no one's there to answer? Is it just me? Am I the only doubter in the room? I know you've walked through a season of darkness and pain, and you cry out to God and you get no answer. That's the problem here in our text. Have you been there? Have you shouted your prayers into a black hole? Well, David knows your feelings well. I love that quote from the church father, Athanasius. Most of the scriptures speak to us. The Psalms speak for us. I love Psalm 13 because it makes me feel pretty good about my prayer life, which sometimes feels like it has multiple personality disorder. God, are you even there? Are you even listening Answer me. Do you hear the desperation in his voice? I prayed prayers like that about 10 years ago and several times since, but the example is from a decade ago. My wife is a cancer survivor. She's been in remission for 10 years, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah. But let me tell you, man. Hey, I'm with you. There were some dark moments. I remember getting some counsel from a dear brother or sister, I can't remember who. They said, you should read Job. I was like, okay, I've read it, but I'll read it again. Can I be honest with you? It didn't help. 
I thought I'd come away from reading Job going, well, he's having a worse day than me, so I can rejoice. But when I came away from reading Job, I, I really felt like, I know, right? It's terrible out here. The suffering is almost too much to bear. Job did not comfort my soul. It exacerbated my feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. But the Psalms were a warm blanket for my soul. Why? Because no matter how depressed David was, no matter how dire the situation, his songs almost always end in triumphant hope that God will show himself faithful to his people. I needed that hope. And I'm certain some of you do too. God is faithful even when he seems invisible. Here's the promise. He hears you and he will respond. God acted on my behalf, on our behalf. He healed my wife and he's even given us two children since then. I mean, things are happy over on Osborne Road. God answered our prayer. God answers David's prayer. You have to look through the scriptures to find that. But you can trust in his steadfast love. You can rejoice in your salvation like the psalmist does in verses 5 and 6. You can sing to the Lord, hey, listen, sometimes you just need to worship your way through the pain. Uh, Martin Luther said, sometimes when I cannot pray, I always sing. I'm, I'm a musician myself. I'm, I believe it's you to decide if I'm any good at it, but I'm a musician. And um, man, there have been seasons in my life where I was struggling to pray, but I soaked the keys of a piano with my tears. Sometimes the right thing to do is just to worship your way through the pain. If you can't pray, try singing. That's what the psalmist does here. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. The promise is that God hears you and He will respond. What's the proof? The proof is His works. Verse 5, David says, He has saved me already and He will continue to save me. Verse 6 tells us that God has dealt bountifully with me. Sometimes you need to just recite the faithfulness of God in seasons past. The proof is what God does, His works. And here's your practice. Trust in the steadfast love of our listening Lord. When you're up against it, when the night is dark and you are desperate, it would serve you well to get a a piece of paper and a pen and write down all the ways that God has dealt bountifully with you. It will encourage you. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Right? I love that verse in Psalm 37, 25. I have been young and now I'm old. I'm starting to feel that more and more every day. But I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Take God up on his promises. Recount his faithfulness. There's a story of the bishop of Smyrna around about 160 AD. His name's Polycarp. And he was about to be martyred and he was given the chance to recount and recant and listen to what he said. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Brother, sister, when you're up against it, 
when you're in that dark moment, recall the goodness of God. Recall His works on your behalf and make a declaration in your soul with the psalmist David, my heart shall rejoice in my salvation. Hasn't He been faithful to you? Won't He continue to be faithful to you? He will. He's done it. and He'll do it again. You can trust God because He is faithful even when all seems lost. He's faithful even when evil seems unstoppable. And He's faithful even when He seems invisible. It was Friday evening. And all seemed lost. Evil seemed unstoppable. And God had gone silent. The Romans and the Jews had conspired to kill the Savior of the world. The sky went dark. The earth shook. Jesus hung motionless on a criminal's cross. The disciples' hope and their courage was gone. It sure looked like evil had won. It sure seemed like God had turned His face away from His Son and His followers. It was dark in Jerusalem that day. But early Sunday morning, God lifted the darkness, God broke the silence, and God stopped evil in its tracks. All hope had been briefly lost, but in the resurrected Christ, all hope was restored and renewed. Early Sunday morning, God delivered on all His promises. And believer, if God can conquer sin and death, He can handle the dark season that you're walking through. God is faithful, He is sovereign, He is merciful, He is just, and He has already defeated sin and death on your behalf. All we need to do now is trust Him. In Christ, the character of God is revealed. In Christ, the Word of God is incarnated, upheld, and fulfilled. And in Christ, the works of God are made manifested and beloved. Hear me. All of this has already been applied on your behalf if you are in Christ. So here's the entire point to my probably too long sermon. You can trust Him. God, thank You. Thank You. We all face seasons where all seems lost, where evil seems unstoppable, and when God... Seems like he's gone silent. But your word encourages us. We can trust you because your character is just and merciful. You are sovereign. We can trust you because your word is sure. And we can trust you because your works. You have dealt bountifully with us. And we ask that you would continue to uphold your word to reveal your character, and to continue to deal bountifully with us. Thank you for the grace you've shown us in Christ. Thank you for the word you've given us. Thank you for the spirit that indwells believers that enables us to follow Jesus. Thank you for the grace upon grace upon grace that you have poured out on your church. Help us to live our lives in response to that grace. In your name we pray. Amen.